Wow. Well, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians. I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, We've been just talking about this idea that Paul wrote an incredibly encouraging letter from an incredibly difficult circumstance. And uh, just being been uh, blessing our socks off, last week we dove into the incredible rescue mission that God initiated for each and every one of us. And today I wanna talk uh, about confidence a little bit. I love our graphic today, that's not hilarious. I'm smiling the whole time. I was thinking about confidence and I was thinking about last night, if my voice is a little hoarse, it's because I yelled at the TV for about two hours during the uh, Warriors game, uh, watching the basketball game. And I was thinking about the ebbs and flow of confidence throughout a game as guys are taking shots and making shots and missing shots. And what does confidence uh, do to encourage us, inspire us, uh, and bring us together? And uh, it cost me a little bit of my voice. So if I'm a little short on voice this morning, um, I apologize for that. I was also just diving in, thinking about times when I've experienced great confidence and times when I've experienced a lack of confidence. How many of you would say you are generally a pretty confident person most of the time? All right, and how many of you, I know you won't raise your hand because you're not confident, would, would just kind of nod your head and say, yeah, sometimes I struggle a little bit with confidence and yeah, okay, yeah, good. <laughs> I knew the confidence folks would throw their hands up there, so I wasn't too worried about that. I was thinking about in ministry, one of the times where I really incredibly lacked confidence and it was uh, a ways back, I was about 23 years old, I was youth pastoring and it was the first time anyone ever asked me to perform a wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but I had been to, since I had gone to college, I had been to a series of weddings and I had been to my own wedding and that worked out okay. (laughs) But it had never occurred to me what might go in to actually performing a wedding for someone. And you would think, well, don't you have a class like Weddings 101 in Bible college? No, there was never a time when we talked even remotely about weddings that I'm aware of. And uh, if so, I was asleep during that class. And so I just missed it. And so a mom in the church asked me if I would do a wedding for her daughter who had been in my youth group for one year and now been out for several years. So I kind of knew her, but I didn't know her very well. And I looked her straight in the eye and said, no, that's not a thing I'll do because no way that freaks me out. So like a month or so went by and this mom came back to me and she said, listen, we've been unable to find somebody and my daughter really loves you. You know, she was, you were her youth pastor for like a year. Is there any way you'd consider doing this wedding? And I was like, well, when is it? So like six months from now. Oh yeah, that's six months from now. Mike's problem. Sure. Fine. I'll do it. Didn't even look at a schedule or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. I'll just do it. Okay. And uh, I just put it on the shelf. Didn't think about it again for a while. Well, six months goes by pretty fast. Pretty soon this wedding's getting darn close. And I am realizing I'm gonna have some actual responsibilities. I'm gonna be record, you know what's gonna happen to me? I'm gonna be on America's Funniest Home Videos. I'm gonna be the pastor that passes out during somebody else's wedding. This is gonna be awful, right? And so I'm I'm talking to all these pastor friends of mine. How'd you do your first wedding? How do you do weddings? What do you do? And they're sending me emailing copies of wedding services that they've done. And I'm like watching weddings online. I'm asking people for their old wedding video. No, not that. But but I'm really, 
really preparing for this wedding, like at a level that is absurdly amount of work. I have logged hours into getting ready for this wedding, okay? And so the rehearsal goes, it's horrible. The whole rehearsal process is just awful. It, it doesn't go well at all. I am sweating bullets, okay? And so the, ne- the day of the wedding shows up and I'm looking at the groom and he's sweating, but I am like drenched, okay? I am, way, I am out sweating the groom, okay? This is not good news. I am so nervous getting into this wedding. Well, the wedding starts. I don't remember anything. It's just a blur. Uh, it ends. <laughs> and uh, at the end, folks are coming up to me like, you did really, really well. And I remember thinking, did you watch what did I like I was I don't even know what happened out there oh no this was great and you have the time that's after the wedding and you know you sign all the documents and make it you know an official wedding and you know then they're eating food and celebrating and it's finally over like all the adrenaline's out and you just kind of crash and I was like wow you know I didn't know I could do it I didn't think I could do it but I made it I made it through this way and that's really cool well about five maybe six months later I get a call from that mom she's not in the church anymore by the way it's just kind of weird so I'm not sure if maybe the wedding didn't go as well as I thought, as she intimated to me that it did. I'm not sure if that's what it was, but I get a call from her and she says, hey, my kids are having a hard time doing their taxes. Did you mail in the wedding paperwork that we left with you? Yeah, no, they weren't married at all. We did a ceremony, but I never mailed in the wedding certificate so they, were, they had to go to the justice of the peace and get remarried so they could file their taxes. I did. It was awful. And that was my first wedding. Don't worry. Don't worry, Keith. I see you back there. I've gotten much better. I've gotten much, much, much better. I couldn't do worse. And so... So I remember that just a lack of confidence led to so many other symptoms. Fear crept in, worry crept in. Someone who was normally pretty competent lost their competency. My courage dwindled. I felt this need to take on more than what was required and overloaded myself and ended up working myself to a place that was virtually unhealthy and just completely unsuccessful. Why? Because a lack of confidence got into the picture and I wasn't sure of what I was called to do, supposed to do. And I wasn't really sure that God had chosen wisely at that moment when he chose me to fulfill those kinds of roles. You see, a lack of confidence can be pretty catastrophic for us from time to time. But uh, it got me just thinking as we begin to walk into this text of Paul talking about how important and significant a sense of confidence is not just self-confidence, but confidence in God. Confidence that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do, that if he calls me somewhere, he'll give me the strength, the ability, as long as I'm faithful to accomplish what he's called me to do. And I think sometimes we all wonder and worry about that. I think of all the times I've had conversations with people who, who profess faith in Jesus and they say the right things. And I wonder, do they believe what they just said? They're walking through difficult times and they're saying, but God's got this. And then I watch their demeanor and I watch the fear creep in and I watch the other things happen. And I think, you know the thing to say outwardly, 
But inwardly, do you have confidence that God's really got this? And this gets so well squeezed out in the text we're going to dive into today. I was thinking about Paul in prison writing letters to encourage other people. And I I was doing some research this week on just the, the nature of Roman prisons. And I came across this one article that that talked about one of the ways that Rome would imprison people. And I had never heard this before. One of the things they would do is they would dig a pit in the ground and they would just throw a grate over that pit. And your prison cell would just be this pit in the ground. Well, if they needed additional space, they would just dig a little deeper, lower the grate and drop another grate and make a two-story prison out of grates. Now think about this picture of being in the mire and clay. Think about this picture of being in prison. Think about this picture of just being in a pit with a grate and another prisoner above you and then a grate and then ceiling. And and many believe that this is the type of prison that Paul was in when he wrote this. Historians will kind of argue what that looked like. But the the type of prison he is in is, is essentially just a hole with a grate and a guard, and he's just being thrown supplies by friends because they would just let him perish in that prison. Think about, I mean, I'm visual, and think about just the nature of a grate and a person, a human above you living there. There wasn't plumbing, okay? And then there's just a grate below you, and then it's just the dirt. And they just let you exist in these kinds of conditions. Paul said that he actually carried in his body the suffering of Christ. He had been beaten he had, they had beat him so severely that they assumed he was dead. They actually drug him out of town and just kind of discarded his dead body, but he wasn't dead. He had been, he had been received the lashes. I don't know about you and your faith, but I've never been in a circumstance where someone's tied me to a, a, a pole and taken a whip and lashed me and said, you got to knock off your faith in Jesus. But he had experienced that having experienced those kinds of sufferings and writing from a place that you and I would say, God, what in the world is happening here? He writes a letter to encourage the church. Why? Because he has understood how to get confidence from God in every circumstance, in every circumstance. So we're going to walk into this letter a little bit, and I want you to have that picture of who's writing it. And uh, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, I'm I'm going to start in verse 12. I just want you to get a picture of what God's going through. I'm sorry, what Paul's going through. Verse 12, it says, In him and through faith we may approach God with freedom, and there's our word, confidence. Now, this is an epic idea. This is Paul. He's going to pray in just a moment. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about him praying, but he's about to pray. And before he does, he is telling folks who are out in the world doing church in environments that are way better than his environment right now, that you know one of the most important things that is now apparent and available to you because of Jesus, you can actually approach God with freedom and with confidence. Now, this is a huge thing. You got to imagine in about 4,000 years of recorded history prior to this, 
this Hebrew culture, this Jewish culture that has evolved and now this Greek culture in their recorded history, there are two things that have not been true about a relationship to God. Whatever God they served, there was not freedom to approach him with confidence. If you think about that, there was no confidence in their approach to God. As a matter of fact, even as you look through history and you look through the scriptures, one of the things you never see is anyone in the Old Testament approaching God boldly with confidence. That's not a thing. You know what they do? They say, hey, don't touch the ark because if you touch it, you're gonna die. Don't look directly at God because if you do, you're gonna die. He is holy and pure, and because we're not holy and pure, we can't get into the presence of his holy, pure nature without our flesh melting away and dying. Do you know what that doesn't breed? Confidence. It breeds maybe self-awareness, like, wow, God's way better than me. But that doesn't inspire me to confidence. And for 4,000 years of history, they have approached God that way. And suddenly Jesus shows up and he tears the veil and he bridges the gap and he changes the way we relate to God the Father. And Paul says, guess what? You, you, you are free. You are worthy. You can approach God with confidence. That's incredible. That's a game changer. That, this literally changes everything. I don't carry around guilt and shame anymore. I have confidence, not because of who I am or what I've accomplished, but because of the rescue that he talked about just a chapter before that Jesus came and accomplished on our behalf. That's crazy good news. And Paul's saying, listen, you, you, you. Look at someone and say, you, you, you. You can approach God with freedom and with confidence. That's pretty awesome. I think sometimes we get nervous when we talk about approaching God. We just get nervous, the weight of that. It's like I understand that someone says that God sees everything, but I just assume that means that he has a big, long list of things we're going to talk about when I get there. So my confidence starts going, because I know me. And God's saying, no, 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 I know you. I know you, and you can approach. Man, that's amazing. I don't know. If you don't hear anything, maybe you just needed to hear that. Paul's like, you can approach with freedom and with confidence. Verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, here again, he's talking about, he's encouraging them, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Wait, what? When you got whipped when you were shipwrecked, snake bitten, beat up, rocks thrown at you, put in prison, all of those sufferings are for me. They're my glory. Here's the thing that Paul has understood. In his paradigm, in his vantage point, from his perspective, it is a privilege to be able to say, hey, I am with God. I stand for Jesus. And if you attack me because of that, if you criticize me because of that, if you wound me because of that, that is a mark of honor in my life. Now, I'm going to bring this home a little bit. This is going to hurt a little bit. So just 
we naturally avoid any of that at all costs. Here's how I know you avoid that. You read a post on Facebook that you agree with and you think, mm, I probably can't like this because this whole wave of people will, will, will go, oh, here go the Christians again, right? Or you see something happening and you think, uh, I'm actually kind of passionate about that. I feel that, but I don't know if I want to get involved because it might cost me or it might. All right. I need to push a little further. Paul says, every time I make a stand for my faith with Jesus, whatever the consequences are, are glory. Whoo, how do you get to that place? I don't know about you. That's really hard. And he's saying, don't be discouraged. You gotta think, these are his friends. He's the church planter of this church. They love him. He introduced them to a relationship with Jesus. And most likely he's living in a ditch in the ground with a grate over him. They're bummed out about it. They care for him. They're saying, hey, that's our pastor. That's our leader. That's the guy, the missionary who came and shared Jesus with us. And he's saying, hey, don't let this be a point of discouragement because of my sufferings. It's glory that I get to do this for Jesus. How many of us can look at our sufferings and go, oh, this is glorious? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody wants to take that on. It's amazing. I read, I read this quote, and I thought it was great. It, it was this idea that comfort leads to complacency, and complacency is the enemy of character and spiritual growth. Comfort leads to complacency, and complacency is the enemy, the enemy of character and spiritual growth. You know the most dangerous times in my life? When everything's going good. When everything's going good, when I can pay all the bills, when all of the things are just kind of falling into place, everything's going really well. It's when I'm the most likely to mess these things up. I'm the most likely to tank because I am enjoying the comfort that God's provided and I am not on my guard. When I'm under attack, when things are crazy, I'm on my game, right? I'm sharp. I'm looking for God. I'm looking for his answers. I'm looking for what he's doing. But man, Lord, don't let me get comfortable. Paul's saying, my sufferings, that's glory. All right, we're not gonna get done if I don't keep moving. For this reason, verse 14, I kneel before the Father. Now, this is cool. Throughout the scripture, very seldom do we see, uh, especially in the New Testament, anybody kneeling to pray. We've kind of adopted this idea that the best way to pray is to kneel, and you should kneel and pray from time to time. But we don't see uh, prayer as this uh, kneeling uh, uh, exercise very often in the scriptures. In fact, most of the time we see people standing to pray. Hands are lifted and they're drawing attention to themselves and Jesus is pointing out, oh, it's not the right way to do it. But uh, <laughs> we see Jesus saying, you know, how to pray, but we never, we never really see the posture of prayer too much. But this is Paul. And I was thinking about this, where he's at in his life, thinking about the beatings that he's taken, the shipwreck that he's had, the lack of food and sustenance, his age at this point. And I was just thinking, you know how difficult it probably is for him to kneel and pray at this point in his life? You know the pain that's probably in his physical body as he does this act before his father? And why would he kneel? Why do we ever kneel? It's an act of surrender, an act of submission, 
an act of absolute abject understanding that somebody else is in control. Someone says, hey, get down on your knees, and you're like, Ooh, you got this, I'm cool, we're cool, right? Because we recognize the authority of the presence of some other being. And Paul says, for this reason, I kneel. I kneel. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, Paul's going to go on, and this is going to be like the longest prayer uh, that any of the apostles have uh, uh, in all of Scripture that we're about to get into. And it's not very long. It's six and a half verses. But, but uh, he says, I, I, I kneel before the Father, and he begins to pray. And I was just thinking, for some of us, I'm going to be just honest. We don't pray enough, and we don't have this prayer thing locked down, and we're not exactly sure how to manage prayer. For some of us, prayer is mysterious still, and we kind of get it, but we don't really get it. And I wanted to just remove some of the mystery of prayer as we walk into what Paul talks about here. Essentially, he does what Jesus did and says, I kneel. He doesn't say, I kneel before, you know, the highest king of the universe. He personalizes his relationship to his dad in heaven. And he says, I kneel before the father. And I don't know about you. I don't know what your relationship with your father was like. I don't know if you are a father um, or a mother. But if you have just been around kids who have a healthy loving relationship with a parent and you watch the way they interact with that parent when they want their attention and they want to talk to them. And maybe it didn't happen in your family, but you've seen it somewhere and you can visualize it. And they get up into their father's business and they climb in and they say, hey, dad, you know what I need? You know what dad usually doesn't do? Hey, I don't care what you need. <laughs> Squish, right? They might roll their eyes a little bit because, you know, that's what we do. But, but very seldom do they face a harsh rejection or a, uh, a stern reproach. I got to tell you, I got three little ones. My little girl, she's articulate. The boys, they don't articulate so much. They're just like, hey, video game. Uh, <laughs> but she gets, in my, she gets in my grill when she needs something, right? And she's like four and already has this mastered. I'll be, you know, watching the game because that's what I do. And all of a sudden, there'll be this nuzzle. And all of a sudden, she'll work her way under my arm, and she'll be on my lap, and, uh, and she'll look up. Can I have a snack, Daddy? <laughs> right? This whole process happens, and you know what I say? No. You know what I say? I say, ask your mother. No. I say, <laughs> I say sure, honey. What do you want? I don't know. Have whatever you want. I don't, you're adorable. Go take it, right? That's, that's the relationship that, that a father has with a child. And Paul's saying, hey, you know when you pray? Just do that. Just do that thing that you do when you're with a father that you love. Just have a conversation with your dad in heaven. If you did that part right, you couldn't mess the rest up. You couldn't. Paul says, do that. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Verse 15. From whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives his name. From whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name. Now, this blew me away. I just want you to catch this. Paul is connecting your earth family with your heaven family, saying you're all part of God's family in this moment. And I don't think about this all the time because I don't know, there's just not a reason to, but this is really cool. I'm related and I got family members in heaven right now. 
and they're not dead, they're alive. And they're in the presence of God and, and we get pictures of heaven throughout scripture and they're praising God and they're, I mean, they're experiencing the fullness of the relationship with God. Not just are, are, they, are they having Jesus as an ambassador so that they can get into the presence of God like we can here. They're literally in the presence of God in the heavens on that side. That's awesome. And they're family members not just biological brothers and sisters, but engrafted family members who went before and lived before. And Paul's saying, all of us are part of that family. That's cool. That's exciting. That rips my whole paradigm about heaven and earth apart, that I got family members in heaven that are just rocking this thing right now. Heaven's just like, oh, oh, oh. No? All right. <laughs> all right. They're rocking it. My family's the NKOTV fans. <laughs> Anyways, that's what's happening. That's so cool. So when we're worshiping down here, we're just like hanging with our family. We're doing the same thing that the other half of our family's doing. I don't know. I don't know if you get as excited about that as I got. I was like, wow, that is, that is really, really, really cool. Here's the other thing it, it made me just process. You and I, this body of believers, this thing that we call the church, God says, the relationship I want you to have is one of family. It's one of family. What I did when I sent my son to bridge that gap and bring us all together was I made us family. That's pretty cool. I don't know if you had, what kind of family you had growing up. I can tell you something about the Puerto Ricans. If you messed with one of our family, you had to mess with all of the family. There were no like, no one just was on their own to deal with stuff. If someone tried to bully in the neighborhood, you couldn't bully just one of the Puerto Ricans. And we multiplied, I'll tell you something. <laughs> we multiplied, there was no messing around. And I don't know what your family was like, but there is just a sense of community and oneness and togetherness. And there were things that you just didn't do because you were family. And there were things you were expected to do because you were family. I remember forgetting my cousin Manuel one Christmas. We played a joke on him. I don't know if you know this joke. I might ruin it for you, but it was a type of arm wrestling. I won't say the type of arm wrestling because it's like an ethnic word that might offend somebody, but it was a joke and it was a type of arm wrestling. And what you would do is you'd put their table on, your arm on a table and tell them, okay, what I want you to do is keep me from pulling your arm down to the table. And if you succeed for 10 seconds to keep me from doing that, you win. But if I get your arm down to the table, you lose. Right? My cousin Manuel's about 22 years old. Uh, he's just graduated from uh, Berkeley at the time. You know, his head's about this big, and we're going to take him down to Neville. So he's got his arm on the table, and me and my, my other cousin Jamie, his little sister, we're probably 14 at the time, and we're both just like, okay, ready? And I mean, his arm's just like up here, and he's, you know, veins coming out of his head because he's not going to let these two teenagers whoop him, you know? And he's like, all right, one, two, three, go. And he's like, Arr! and then we let go. <laughs> Bam! Stars. He saw stars, okay? Sweat was beating down his face. He's like on the ground for a second stun. And then he gets up and he grabs both of us by the neck. And I'll never forget this. Because he's big, right? And he's like, you don't do that to family. <laughs> right? And he was right, because I was really afraid. But, <laughs> but, but there's just things that you do and you don't do because you're family, I was thinking about the people that I pray for in my life. You know who I pray for in my life? Pretty much the most? 
my family, you know, myself and my family. I don't know who you pray for the most, but my family. And Paul is saying, hey, don't forget all of us are in the family. When you go to the Lord, when you pray, you pray for your family. Here's the thing I think sometimes that is just devastating for us, that as a church, we do this wrong. And I, I just, I want us to catch this. We approach what happens in here sometimes more like a business experience than a family experience. Here's how I know. I, I saw this illustration. I was laughing so hard, but here, here's how I know. You don't pray for your local grocery store. You don't. You never do. You never say, God, I hope all the fruits and vegetables get there on time. They're not too bruised up. You know, I hope that they, uh, you know, the workers all show up for their shifts. And, you know, you don't pray that way. Why? Because it's just a business that you interact with. It's not your family. Right? Yet we take our church family and we treat them the same way that we treat a business that we interact with. Here's why that's dangerous. Because when we're interacting with a business, our agenda changes. It's subtle, but it's true. For each and every one of us, I don't care who you are, your goal becomes to give the least and get the most, right? What's the least? That's why you're saving your coupons up. You got your, you know, you got your deals going. You're trying to work a deal. You never feel better than when you feel like you got a deal, right? I mean, it's true. Ha ha, that guy paid full price, but I got, you know, 10%, whatever it is. That's how you interact with a business, that's okay, that's the game. But we come to this place and we have a tendency to shift out of family thinking and into business thinking. How do I give the least to get the most of what I need? And Paul's saying, whoa, danger, 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 danger. We're family. And family, the rules are always different. Family is about what can I bring the table to serve? What can I, what do you need? How can I help? I could pick that up. I'm not great, but I'll help you. What can I do? Paul says we're family. Verse 16, I pray, he's, he's seriously praying now, it's getting real, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen, if you are highlighters, you should have your Bible out and just highlight all of this because this is so good. Paul prays that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Let's leave it right here through faith. We'll stop right there. Now, there's so many pieces I wanna pull out of here. If you wanna just make a note to yourself and research this, what's cool is all of, the, all of the components of the Trinity are in this prayer, which is just really cool. He's God the Father, his spirit, uh, the son. I mean, all of these components, Paul's just like, pulling them all together and talking about the identity of God and how we approach him in prayer and how we interact with the whole of God. It's just amazing. I just, if I go there, that'll be all we talk about. So I don't, I'm gonna stop there. I just want you, want you to make a note there and look at that. You should read this. It's incredible. However, here's what I want you to catch. Paul says, you have to be strong in your inner being. Now I like in the, in the New King James, it says in your inner man. Being's a little bit easier because we can all relate to it. But if I inter, inter, in, interject the word man, it's because I learned it that way. But, but uh, he's saying, you've got to be strong on your inner self, your inner being. You got to have a good sense of who you are on the inside. That peace needs to be strengthened by God. Now here's the thing. 
Is God running out of glorious riches? Is he running out? Then you can't be running out of strength on your insides. Did you catch that? Because your source of strength, your source of power to be who God designed you to be on the inside is God and his glorious riches. And if he's not running out of power, then you're not running out of power. And on the inside, you're not wasting away. That's why Paul can say, I've experienced all these things on the outside, though outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly, I'm renewed day by day. My inside man gets stronger and stronger and stronger, even if my flesh gets weak. Not that we shouldn't take care of our flesh. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that inside person gets its strength from a relationship with God. That's awesome. That's why he goes on to say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that, let's flip that. You, I love this, being rooted and established in love. As I read that, here's what I thought. I thought, okay, so Paul didn't have electricity. So he couldn't give an illustration like you're plugged into a power source. So the closest illustration, when I hear rooted in love, he's essentially saying your roots, your power source, the way you draw energy, draw nutrients for your inner man is that you are rooted and established in love because Christ dwells and lives in your heart. He's saying you gotta feed that thing that restores and revives and energizes your soul, your inside peace. Pastor Mike, where are you going with that? Well, let me give you an example. I, uh, I sat down, this is about two years ago, with a dad that I had never met before from a youth group kid. And uh, the youth group kid was one of those uh, difficult ones. He was a guy that would uh, show up and then just ditch out halfway through. And there's, uh, there's few things, uh, Michael Alsberger knows this experience well, as one of my former youth group kids, uh, that will push a youth pastor out of his mind, then you were here when we signed in, you're not here at the end of the night. Something happened, right? So this kid pulled this on me twice. So the first time, everybody's out looking for him. We find him. He's a coffee across the street or whatever. The second time, I just bring his dad in. I'm like, I can't police your kid. He's a runner. Like, what am I supposed to do with him? He's in high school. And I, I sit down with this dad. And I begin to hear the story of what's going on. And uh, mom's been coming to church for a little while, but dad hasn't. And the kids are starting to come to youth group because mom's making them. Good honor. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking to dad, though, and I... And I begin to hear this story of how they, their kind of him and his wife's marriage has gone. And I'm finding out that they, for a long time, were very active and involved in a church. And they had backed off from that. And he'd been very involved in his kids' sports stuff. Not the sports stuff's bad. I'm involved in my kids' sports stuff. You should be involved in your kids' sports stuff. But as a result of that, they didn't in plug in any longer to some of the things. He had gotten out of the small group that he had been in. He was out of his accountability for some recovery things that he was doing. And he was out of all of those circles of things. And during the course of that, he had started an uh, illicit, I'll call it relationship, with a former high school girlfriend from actually like over a hundred miles away. And he had a kind of job where he traveled. And so for about two years, he had just lived a double life. And he had been saying that he was away on business and, and, and he wasn't and was basically just living in two families at the same time. Now, 
I'm hearing this story thinking, man, this is like a soap opera. I've never, I've never met someone who's like pulled off what you're describing. And so I'm, at first I'm just skeptical, like, are you just making this story up? Or like, you know, where's the, like the dun-duns, like the Law and Order things hasn't gone off. But, uh, but I'm hearing this story and I'm, I'm trying to understand and be compassionate. And finally I, I ask him, I'm like, I'm like, you have to tell me, like, how did you get here? Because this is far. How'd you get this far? And he began to just explain how being cut off from all of the things that fed his inner man began to weaken him on the inside. No longer were his roots in love. No longer were his roots in those environments that began to give care for his inner man. And pretty soon things that would have been unconscionable, unthinkable, unacceptable became, uh, really? I mean, maybe. And they became okay. And inch, inch by inch, he began to just walk into something that he never had imagined. And now he was at this place where he was just devastated. And Paul's saying, your source of power for your inward man, the part that holds it together, the part that stays connected to God, the part that has a conscience where the Holy Spirit drives this thing, that needs to be resourced and energized by the power of God. You have to stay plugged in. Paul is in a probably a hole in the ground writing to people who are just hanging out in houses talking about Jesus saying, don't you dare get unplugged from this family God's provided you with, from this faith that God's provided you, this confidence that you can have to approach God freely. Don't let yourself get unplugged from the power source. That's pretty huge. That's what he's praying for. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you established and rooted in love may have 18 power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long, this is just awesome stuff, and high and deep is the love of Christ. He say this thing is huge. And to know, <laughs> verse 19 just makes me laugh. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I just want you to hear those words outside. I pray that you would know something that ain't nobody knows, that nobody can know. There ain't no way to know what I'm praying that you'll know. Thanks, Paul. That's easy to break down. Paul's saying, you can't just get head knowledge of this. This is an experience that happens out of a relationship. Here's the thing. If you asked me about my wife, I could talk and 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 talk. But you can't know her unless you have a relationship with her, unless you spend time with her and get to know her. You can know about her. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you can know that thing that surpasses just knowledge. It's an experience. It's a confidence that comes from saying, my father in heaven has got this. That's awesome. <laughs> verse uh, 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's like, fill them up. Fill them up, God. It's awesome. Verse 20, if this isn't in your, this is the tattoo you want to get. Like this is the bumper sticker you want to get. Like this is the one that you want on your stationery, like your email sign off. This is the one. So you should highlight this, um, write this down, text it to yourself. But Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask for or imagine 
according to the power. Now catch this, that it's at work within who? Wait, what? To him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, and it's at work in you. The outlet of God's power. See, we plug in and then a light bulb goes off. And that power source in the earth is us. We do it according to his power that's worked within us. To him be glory in what? In the church. Wait, what? To him be glory in the church? I'm just going to say a couple things here because I'm a ranter and I'm going to rant. I get sick and tired of people going after the church. People saying, well, the church, you know, it's just a rock concert or it's boring or it's, you know, it's too long or it's too short or they don't preach line by line or they never talk about important topics. I mean, you can find a way to get critical about any of the elements in the church. I don't know about you, but if you really want to tick me off, talk some smack about my wife. And every time I look in the scriptures, Jesus says, that's the bride of Christ. That's my bride. I love, this is God, the church. And so if you really want to cross, get crossways with someone, talk some trash about their wife. Paul says, to him be glory in the church. Man, we got to love the church, all her flaws. It's full of people. Of course it's messed up but God loves it. He designed it. He orchestrated it. He intended it. He wants it. He feeds it. He nourishes it. He cares for it. It's his bride. It's us. It's his family. Stop talking smack about the church. Just knock it off. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm talking to you. Because none of us in the room would do that. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now catch this throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. He prayed this thinking about us, the future church, and however it would look. You know, the church didn't look just one way in Paul's time either. He did it different in Ephesus, and then they were doing it in Colossae, then they were doing it in Rome, then they were doing it in Antioch. They were meeting differently in culture. They were having a hard time figuring out the rules because some churches had different rules because they had more Jewish people in them that had different uh, uh, cultural normative things than other churches, and they had different cultural things, and some were meeting at the Sabbath time on Saturday, and some were meeting in houses on whatever day they could meet, and some were just underground, and some were just meeting outside. There was no right or wrong way to do it even then. It was just important that you got together as the body and became disciples, fell more in love with God and more in love with people and believed and plugged into the Father. That was the goal. All right, I'm rant over, I'll move on. So I wanna talk just for a moment about what happens, just for a moment, when we don't have this kind of confidence, when we don't strengthen our inner person, when we don't plug in to the source of energy and then crisis hits. And we find ourselves, maybe not as horrifically of a circumstance as Paul finds himself in, but we find ourselves facing things that seem hard. I'm going to give you three quick things, very quickly, that hit. The first one is this discouragement kicks in. Oh, maybe doubt kicks in first. 
there you go. No, they're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> Doubt kicks in. That's what happens, right? We start doubting. We start wondering. Like, God, do you really got this? Do you really care? Did I hear you? Am I wrong? Did I, am I right? Did there's some hidden thing in me I didn't need to get rid of? Did you see that thing and I thought we were cool? I mean, whatever it is, doubt begins to kick in. Next thing, discouragement. Discouragement kicks in. We start doubting God and then pretty soon we start experiencing the, act, the act, actual thing that, God, that Paul's praying against. We start experiencing discouragement. Think about some of you guys may know the story. John the Baptist he found himself in a very similar situation to Paul. He was arrested. He was facing execution. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 11, if you want to read it. He was arrested because he told the local ruler, Herod, hey, you know that it's against the law for you to take your brother's wife and marry her out from under him, right? You know that's against the law. That's what he did. That was the crime he was charged with, was simply communicating to someone who was in charge of the law that they had broken the law, and that probably wasn't cool. And because of that, he was thrown in jail. And he's sitting in jail hearing stories about Jesus just healing people, doing miraculous things, about the followers of Jesus, experiencing this incredible power. And he's looking around, and he goes, hey, all that sounds awesome, but I'm still in jail. Why isn't that my experience I'm hearing the story of other people's victory, but my experience is I'm sitting here in jail looking at a potential death sentence. And so he sends some of his uh, followers over to Jesus to just check. Doubt has creeped in and discouragement has kicked in. And he says, hey, I'm just checking. I know there's cool things going on, but you're the one, right? This is the guy that baptized Jesus, saw the Holy Spirit descend in a dove and heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But a little bit of this world doesn't seem to be working out the way I want it to and immediately discouragement kicks in and he starts double thinking all the things he knows. You see what happens when our inward man gets weakened? Jesus's reply is, hey, look around and see all the things that God is doing and go let John know God's got this. John doesn't get out of prison. In fact, he meets a pretty grisly end that I won't get into right now. The end result of your circumstances isn't the end result of your life or the end result of what God's doing. We got family on both sides of heaven. We're connected. God's doing something on this side of heaven and celebrating on that side of heaven and doubt and discouragement kick in. Here's the fear. If you let doubt and discouragement kick in, it's gonna lead to disobedience. And that's where we find ourselves time and time again. And Paul is praying that doubt and discouragement would remove itself from our lives because we plugged into the power source of God so that we'll never find ourselves in a position of disobedience. Because that's what we end up doing. We start saying, okay, God, I'm feeling down. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm just gonna do this my own way. I'm out. He's saying, don't do that. You stay plugged in. You strengthen your inner man no matter what. I... Uh, I want to close with an illustration here about God that I think will help us. Um, it's an illustration. Uh, the guy's name is Louis Giglio, who came up with it. You may or may not know him. He's the guy from The Passion. It's from his book, Indescribable. And it's a, a talk called, If the Earth Were the Size of a Golf Ball. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Paul has said that God is able to do above and beyond exceedingly more than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. And I wanted to end the service today with just challenging you about how big you really believe God is. 
Now, Psalm 33, six says this. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Think about that. God literally spoke and created the heavens. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. That means that the stars in the sky were breathed out of the mouth of God. As I was listening to this, it just challenged me in my gut about the God that I pray to and what I believe he's capable of. I want you to think for just a minute. I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to actually have the ushers come forward here, and they're going to pass out for you guys a golf ball. I got a foam soft golf ball because um, there's children present, and so I'm not sure uh, if giving a bunch of real golf balls out would have worked. So they're going to pass out some foamy golf balls. Um, I think I have enough, but I may not quite have enough. So if you and your spouse want to just have one golf ball so you can illustrate it, that'd be helpful. That way the kids that are in here can get one because they're going to need one. They're going to take it anyway, so. (laughs) But here's the illustration I want you to catch. This is just some math. And you guys can begin just passing those out and you can grab a golf ball and just hold it. If the earth was the size of the golf ball, if the earth was the size of the golf ball, then the sun in order to be in scale with the earth, would have to be 15 feet in diameter. Now think about 15 feet, and then spin all the way around in diameter. That's the size the sun would have to be if the earth were the size of a golf ball. Now that's a huge picture, but if you were really ambitious and you were helping your kid for a science project and you had a big truck, you could build a scale model of the sun, 15 feet in diameter, and you could make the earth the size of a golf ball. Now, remember, the scripture says that God breathed out the stars. We think of the earth as pretty big. And we're sitting here on the earth. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet across. But the sun's not the biggest star that we know of in the sky. In fact, the sun's pretty tough. I mean, the sun, if you think about it, if it wasn't just calibrated just right, we'd be scorched, right? If if it had a different level of light radiance, we wouldn't be able to support or sustain life. Like the the sun is amazing. And it's in like the top 9% of stars that we know as far as brightness and just like stability. But the sun is really a ball of like nuclear power and just colliding atoms. It's powerful. We think of the sun, we're like, oh, you know, makes the flowers grow. No, the sun is just power and God breathed that out. But again, the sun is not the largest star in the sky. I'm gonna give you another star. This star is, um, if you look up here to the left, this is how you would see it in the Milky Way. It's the, uh, the orange one up there on the top left, that red star right there. Uh, I'm gonna butcher some of these names. This one looks like Betelgeuse when you say it. It's Betelgeuse or something like that, but I'm just gonna say Betelgeuse because that's easier to say. All right, so now I want you to catch this. It is about 427 light years away. It's twice the size, not of the sun, but of the earth's orbit around the sun. So the earth goes an orbit around the sun. You double that size and you've got Betelgeuse. That's crazy. So if the earth was the size of a golf ball, the sun's 15 feet, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, imagine six empire state buildings stacked on top of each other. 
So you go to the Empire State Building, you go six times that height, and you set your golf ball down, and then you back up and you look, and you say, the earth is the size of a golf ball. And just one star that God breathed out is six Empire State Buildings. That's huge. Now, you could fit 262 trillion Earths inside of that star. Trillion with a T, not billion. If the Earth were the size of a golf ball, that's enough to fill up the Seahawks Stadium with golf balls 3,000 times. Think about that. That's how big that star is. That's crazy. God's much bigger than we think. I want you to meet another star. This is uh, Musifi. Let's uh, bring this out here. Yeah, this is Musifi, all right? He's out, he's out there just hanging out. We can see him. Musifi's pretty big. He's also known as the Herschel Garnett star. If the earth were a size of a golf ball, he would be as wide as two Golden Gate bridges stacked next to each other. So I want you to imagine all the pictures you see of the Golden Gate Bridge, or maybe you went out there in this little spot right there, you take a picture and the bridge is in the background, right? Two of those together, and you drop your golf ball there, and that's how large this star Musifi is. I want you to get the picture of the star that God breathed out. Musifi can hold 2.7 quadrillion Earths. Quadrillion. Now we're like in national debt levels here. <laughs> quadrillion. Fake made up numbers that is just crazy. I'm gonna give you one more star and then we're done. Let me introduce you to the big dog. That's Canis Majoris aptly named the big dog star. If uh, the earth were the size of a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Imagine going to Everest and just placing a golf ball on there and saying, if this whole thing were filled up, that's how high it would be. That's crazy. Majoris is so monstrous, you could fit seven quadrillion earths inside of it. Seven quadrillion. I didn't even believe that was a number. It's enough to cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls two feet deep. Two feet deep. We're talking to your knees everywhere in Texas of golf balls. That's the size of the big dog star. These are just four of the stars among hundreds of billions of stars. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, just to give us some perspective. I'm challenged to just understand that God is much bigger than I think he is. For Psalm 33, six to say that he literally breathed out the stars the power source that's available to you, the God of the universe that you pray to is literally able to do above and beyond immeasurably more than anything you can ask for or imagine. That's who God is. So why are we not confident? 
Why do we not believe that he is able? Why don't we approach him with the confidence that Paul says we can have, believing that our Father in heaven is able to do more than we can imagine? That's who God is. I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna close. And I just, I just gotta have a moment here because I really believe that for some of us, there has been a distinct lack of believing that God's really got this. And so for just a moment, I know you got a, you got a golf ball. I want us to have some perspective because through all that size of space and time, he looks down at this golf ball and he sees you and he cares for you and he knows you. And that is what Paul is praying our confidence would be connected to. That is who Paul is praying our confidence would be connected to. And so we're gonna, we're gonna close. We're just gonna sing this chorus. And I wanna invite you to maybe take a step of faith. Maybe take a step of confidence. Maybe come before God this morning for just a moment and say, God, here's what I need. Here's what only you can do. Would you move? Because you're the God of the universe.